last time we began on the book of Philippians and we focused on just the first few verses and managed to get a fair bit of uh, meat out of those and today we are uh, going through uh, verses 3 to 11 and just to recap we said that the Philippians had received this letter from Paul. It was just a letter that was read out at the front, and the, the people were, were um, encouraged and thanked by Paul. And we we heard that Paul's style with this letter was not like some of his others, which began by an ex exerting of his authority in order that he might then go through some pastoral issues that needed uh, addressing. So we said that this letter was of a different tone. It was, it was as if Paul had picked up his pen and simply wrote what was on his heart. And it was full of joy and it was full of thanksgiving to the, the Philippians. When uh, other people failed to do so, it was the church of Philippi that you know, put their hands in the pockets and raised money to give to the cause uh, of the gospel um, and so Paul never forgot that and he, he also counted the act as if you like partnering with him in the ministry and so he, he's filled with joy and thanks and we see maybe a a process taking place in verses 3 to 11 which can apply just as much to us because when we remember their friends Christian friends it it uh, and others it, it leads us then obviously to, to pray to God for their needs and then these petitions they as we're praying we're, we're prompted then to give thanks to God for our friends and as we're giving thanks to God for our friends, that obviously leads to just a general thanksgiving to God, to just thank him for, for everything. Well, our main text today is going to be verse 9. Verse 9. And I've picked out three elements here I'd like to speak on. And you, you, may, uh, you may already preempt what I'm about to uh, speak on. It, it is about those things, love and knowledge and discernment. And so the first point he makes is that they, and, and therefore us, we should abound in love. We should mm, we should experience, we should express uh, love uh, in abundance. So in verse 7 we read that the church of Philippi was said to be with Paul in prison and his, in his defence of the gospel. Well, what does this mean? Obviously the people weren't located, physically located with Paul in prison. They weren't sitting next to him in jail. They were outside but such was their love for him 
such was his awareness of that love that he felt as if they were with him right there maybe that's what it means when people say they'll be there in spirit <laughs> it's usually a it's usually a, just a polite phrase that doesn't usually mean much but but there's something there isn't it there's, there's some sense in which we can make people feel that we're, we're right by their side J just as we don't see Jesus but we know he's at our side and of course Paul says broadening this out in my whole work for the gospel my, my defense of the gospel my apology for the gospel it is all uh, done with you at my side as it were and this was reciprocated Paul Paul loved them and Paul it said in verse 8 that Paul yearned yearned for fellowship with them now do, you know, does that describe our attitude to the saints in our congregation do you yearn to be with the brethren to meet with them or do you meet with them as little as you can get away with do you meet with them but your heart your mind are fixed on other things in life other pleasures other responsibilities well we all have responsibilities and other interests but our main sort of interest if you like should be it's all centered around God and God wants you to be regularly in face-to-face -face contact with the brethren you're not just to do it from duty but if necessary to do it out of duty but you should try to foster uh, the love that uh, Paul had for his brethren so Paul uh, explains he explains later that what the nature of this love is now as you know uh, we we hear preachers talk about different Greek words for love you'll hear them mention Philadelphia or Eros or Agape and these have subtle differences in meaning and there are some there are some crossovers there so you will find sometimes these words are used interchangeably so we can't treat them as uh, discrete words each with their own particular meaning but what we can say about Paul's choice here of the word agape is that it is most certainly a love that puts others before ourselves it means that you should be prepared to be inconvenienced for the benefits of someone else you should be prepared to see them better off than you and be happy about it as these as these Philippian uh, folks as they heard these uh, prayers in the form of this letter they must have thought you know this Paul he really does love us he, he, he knows us personally but he loves us 
You'll remember this uh, verse in 1 Corinthians 13. You might have heard it called, you know, the, the love chapter or something. But the first verse says, If I speak in the tongues or the languages of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So it, it doesn't matter whether you find yourself the best orator in the land and and uh, employ him here to minister to you. Uh, if he does not have love for you, then he may as well be standing in the pulpit just banging on a can or a tin or something. Just pointless, uh, empty, noise, annoying, <laughs> irritating noise. Well, We're talking about the necessity of love and I suppose the, the people of Philippi would be would be would be challenged by this love shown by Paul as well as being moved by it. The, what the, the, the preacher has a number of jobs, so sometimes he will try to edify the brethren. He will use words of encouragement. He will say, Keep going, brethren. You've come so far, keep going in the race. There might be some rebuke, saying, you know, brethren, the, 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 the commitment to, to your place of worship is very poor, or something like that. But a preacher might also set challenges for people. He will, he will present to them a a high standard of Christian behaviour which pleases God and urge them to aim for it. That's what challenge is. And the Philippians would have been no doubt challenged uh, as, as maybe we are today. How can, we, how can we have a heart like Paul has? He seems to have the very heart of Jesus in him. How can we do that? Well, brethren, if you're a believer today, you have the love of God in your heart already. What we need to do together is try to build it up and increase it. And I don't mean by trying to, <clears throat> well, not necessarily trying to walk around smiling or, or, or looking for artificial ways to you know, fulfill uh, and express that Christian love. Not at all. We need to be thinking of those hard situations. So focus instead not on the people you get on with. Think about the people who irritate you. How will you love them? How will you love the people with views so uh, different from yours in, in certain areas that you, you, you find it difficult to even be in their company? Maybe that's you. And so... We have people in the church who are awkward, and then we have people outside. We have people outside who, who hurt people and bully people and steal from them and ruin their lives. Uh, how do we... I mean, those people should be in jail, but how do we love them? How do we love them? It's hard. That's what we need to do. Well, the second thing Paul talks about is knowledge. We need to... Uh, we need to... Um, grow we need to grow in knowledge we need to have an abundance of knowledge 
So the knowledge that Paul has in mind is not just intellectual. Now we must use the intellects or the minds that God gave us to grasp the, the, the meaning of what is being read or preached. So the intellect comes into play. But the point is that it is not only use of the intellect, it is a heart matter as well. And again, the word, the word Paul chooses to use, it really conveys to us that it, this is a personal knowledge of God. You see, you can have the cleverest um, theologian uh, in the world who, let's say, let's just say that he is uh, he is clever, but he doesn't personally know God. He is not he has not been born again. He is not saved. So that man can understand an awful lot in terms of bare facts and other things, but he doesn't have that knowledge. The knowledge that comes with being in a relationship, and this is what Paul uh, means. Let me read for you from Colossians chapter 3 and verse 10. Colossians 3 and verse 10, it says, And you put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Renewed in knowledge. This, this knowledge here, we, we might say truth. Truth is an essential part of our Christian lives. To, for us just to, to be Christians, we need to, we need to know the truth of God. And then having, having uh, discovered what the truth is, we are then to grow in it, we are to expand it, we are to stretch out the borders of our knowledge so that we learn about more things surrounding God and that, that each of those things we must be prepared to um, study them more deeply so it is breadth and it, it is depth and neglect of this pursuit of truth is a reason for spiritual um, stagnation and so you will have people who have who boast of making a profession, you know, 30 or 40 years ago, but they seem to be spiritually immature. They seem to be on the fringes of the congregation. They seem to be lacking in, uh, lacking in their willingness to submit themselves to the church, to the, to the local church, you know, to the work of the church, and humbly uh, be prepared to be a servant. But <clears throat> let me just give you a few uh, pointers, some of them obvious perhaps, about how we can grow in knowledge, how we can grow in truth. Well, the, the, the first and most obvious way is to do what you are doing now, which is to uh, place yourselves under the sound of a gospel ministry. And it is your duty to ensure that you are uh, hearing faithful uh, preaching it is your job and if you found yourself in life in a church where that wasn't the case then you would you should move on 
So preaching then, it is, it is men that have God raised up. Men of different, men who have some beliefs which are common to them, core beliefs about Jesus being the saviour, dying on a cross, being resurrected, ascended, being the mediator, trusting Christ being the only way to salvation. You can go across the entire length and breadth of Christendom and they'll all agree on all those points. It is in other things where we, where we uh, disagree. Now, obviously I've said God raises up different types of people. So, we, 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 we know for certain that there is not going to be a preacher alive who knows everything, whose doctrine is perfect on every point. Because being a man, the preacher is limited. But, hopefully in the essentials, there is agreement. So, good gospel ministry then is one of the means God is pleased to use. A means that he chose, that he set up. And though your preacher may be imperfect in a number of ways, still, you will, you will learn, you will grow in knowledge through that. And another way that we can grow is through church Bible studies. And so we have our um, we have our Bible study here, and we sit around, and we each of us say we'll contribute and give thoughts, and questions will be asked. And this is a completely different format of, of meeting, but still it has its place, and we 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 find that there are many benefits to to that. So, so friends, if you are one who doesn't come to the Bible study, I would encourage you to do so. You must decide whether the reasons you stay away are legitimate or not. But certainly, if, if there's any way at all you can get yourself here to that Bible study, you will be benefited. And of course, you will encourage the brethren. they like to see you turn up. And the, and the final way I'd like to mention about how you can grow in, in truth is through personal Bible study. So this is at home. The personal Bible study at home is not a proper way to find truth if it's done alone. You, you'll, find, you'll find believers who say that, well, I stay at home. I don't go to church. I don't believe in organised Christianity. I stay at home and worship God there. And I study the Bible with my family. Well, doesn't matter how clever that person is, they, they are disobeying God, first of all. They are uh, neglecting the very uh, model that he has presented to them for the functioning of the church. Because part of that involves not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together, as the habit of many people is. So, Bible study home alone is not good enough, but still it is to be carried out anyway. It, it may surprise you that some people, you know, have really have no idea how to study the Bible. But it's, this, is a, this is a common problem. So, for those who are not sure what to do, you probably 
I expect that you pray at home and you open your Bibles and read. Bible study then would be a step up from simply reading the Word. You would have the Bible open. You would maybe go through some reading plan or make your own. It doesn't matter so much how, how much or how little you read each day. Don't let people try to dictate that to you. But they can recommend reading plans as I have done. So that each day you would go through maybe you know, two, three, four chapters in the Bible. <clears throat> including Old and New Testament. So how you can supplement the reading of the scriptures is to simply have a notebook. Have a notebook and a pen by the side of your Bible. When you come across something surprising, write it down. When you come across something you don't understand, write down the question there. So you can ask someone uh, when you turn up for worship. And you make notes. And you can then add to that by buying a commentary. Now, the simplest way to get a commentary is to find an online Bible uh, on, and use it on your phone if you're that way inclined or on your computer. If you are thoroughly old school, then you can still buy printed books, uh, paper, <laughs> and um, with, with, with words in, yeah, the old books. And uh, some people prefer that anyway. And so you can get yourself a, a commentary so a commentary is just, of course, it's just one man or a group of men um, interpreting the Bible the best they can and presenting that to you. These men are uh, like, like every other servant of God, uh, imperfect. So commentaries will have things in that you may not agree with. I'm sure they have things in that are not exactly biblical. But still... Putting those, small, um, putting those small reservations aside, a good commentary is, is uh, of great value. So get yourself a commentary, or, or maybe more than one. Maybe an old one, maybe a new one. You might go for, say, John Gill or Matthew Poole, uh, in terms of you know, ones that are hundreds of years old. And, and then get something more up-to-date, get something more modern, so you have a different perspective. So then we talked about abounding love, abounding in knowledge, and, and how, to, how best to, to grow in knowledge. And the final one is, it, Paul encourages us to abound in discernment. Discernment, good judgment, uh, wisdom, perhaps would be an acceptable Synonym. So we might say that we, we, we foster a love for God and a love for the brethren and we want to know more about God and so that leads us to, to seek truth about him and grow in knowledge. And when we have that knowledge, we then must apply it. And that's where discernment comes in. And, um, and that's why discernment then follows logically from those other two. Discernment, good judgment. It says in Romans 12 and verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. 
what is good and acceptable and perfect. Discernment then. So what type of things do we need to exercise this good judgment over? What do we need to exercise discernment about exactly? Well, there's firstly, obviously, there's Bible truth. Bible truth. You can you can open a Bible and read a verse, and if you knew nothing, if you had zero knowledge about the rest of the Bible and you read one verse, it could lead you astray. Because you don't understand it in the context of the whole Bible. You need to have uh, a general idea of what's going on so you understand that, that one verse. So, Bible truth. The principle here is Scripture interpreting Scripture. So, this is why we need a, a, a broad knowledge of the Scriptures and why it's good to try and read it frequently. We also need judgment in our relationships with others because, you know, people are people have sensitivities on the one hand, and then you who are speaking to them, you have various levels of social skills. And it is when those two things are not in phase with each other that we get offence being caused. So, person A says something to person B. Person A thinks their comment is perfectly reasonable. They thought through it and it's perfectly reasonable. They filtered it correctly. Person B finds that they've been triggered. And so, person B then takes offence at what person A says. And we might argue that person B is too sensitive. We might say person A is too insensitive or lacking in wisdom. And half of all the trouble in churches is caused by this uh, incongruity between you know, the judgment of one person and the sensibilities of another. How do we fix that? We pray to God for wisdom in how we communicate to others. That's We pray for this discernment to know you know, how far we can go in challenging someone without, without offending them. We can learn how to accept comments, how to, how to put the best spin on what others say to us. So that our starting point is, well, maybe they meant this. Give them the benefit of the doubt. We need discernment too in learning how to pray. Learning how to pray. It says here in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 10. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. We need to find out what pleases God. And so that we can pray then more appropriately. Because as you know there are conditions with prayer. We, we, we pray in faith. We must pray we must pray um, in, in the name of Jesus. We must be, uh, we must be, we must have a, a good war. We, we, we must be walking with God and not living in acts of willful disobedience to Him. And of course, we must pray according to His will. So we need to have wisdom to know what to pray. 
We find that in the churches generally the bulk of, uh, no, not the bulk, a large part of the content of prayer meetings is praying that ill people will be made better. Now, we don't know that, you know, when God sends some illness to someone and puts them on their back, we don't know exactly what his purposes are in doing that or how long he plans to keep it up for. He might keep someone in a bed of illness for six years and then take them away. He might die. He might, he might have someone with, you know, the flu and be ill for a few days and then raise them back to health and strength. Now, because we care about people, we pray, oh, we want them to be better. God, God knows that. But we have to bear in mind that it's not always God's will. So we use discernment. We will say, Lord, we, we would have this person made better, but nevertheless, not our will, but yours be done. If you, whatever plan you have for that person in their infirmity, in their illness, Lord, make it clear to them, teach them, and bring them out refined like God. So generally then, discernment, we, we, we exercise discernment in anything really, anything we do. Anything we do which will please God, because we want to make God smile, don't we? We want to please him. I'll conclude with some, some brief remarks. Well, Paul said he wanted them to grow in love, but not without knowledge and discernment. We have people in the church who are exuberant. They are full of um, the joys of spring. They are uh, all about the love, and they love Jesus, and they love you, and they love everyone. And that's fantastic. Uh, but they might have little interest in doctrine. Those people are not walking according to the will of God. They're walking in a disobedient way. And you might... You might, uh, you might have come across people who seem to be uh, quite bright in comprehending doctrinal truths. You might find people who are doctrinally correct and yet they are lacking in love. And that person is in a precarious situation too. Paul is saying that we need love and truth. And we then need to combine those to give us a better, uh, better degree of judgment in things. So, what's the benefit of fostering these things? What's the benefit of abounding in love, knowledge, and discernment? Well, we've said that our interactions with people in church will be better. What we say will be sounder, and how we say it will be improved if we have these things. Uh, Verse 7 mentions the gospel, so this obviously helps in the gospel. That's what this, that's what it's, it's what the, the, our work is all about. The gospel, it's about the Son. Uh, back in that uh, Godhead council, agreeing to become the surety for his people. In other words, the Father entrusted the Son with a, a multitude of of souls of men and women 
And Christ Jesus agreed to be their guarantor. He agreed to come into this world and to, after a brief life of good works, to surrender himself to a sinful man so that they might be used as tools to, to kill him. It was his plan to die. And it was in that it was in that episode on Calvary and his subsequent death and his eventual resurrection and ascension that we have Jesus Christ as our Saviour. It's through that that he secured our salvation. It was through that that he paid that price of redemption for every single man and woman that would ever be saved. He didn't die for more. He didn't die and redeem people who would be lost. And, and in the same fashion, he does not save any who did not have that price paid at Calvary for them. It is a marvellous gospel. It makes us tremble when we think, we who are believers, when we think that God has saved us. We would we never have chosen him. Anyone who says that they, you know, we have this free choice, we can, we can choose God or not. What they, what they fail to understand is that by saying that you exercise the choice to choose exercise the choice um, to be saved whereas another person didn't says that you are not as sinful as them that's what it means that you are not as sinful you must be less sinful than that person next to you now that might please your pride but um, the, the message from the Bible seems to be that, that this sin is um, it is Deadening to the souls of men and women so that they cannot even repent of their own uh, choice. Well, it is a glorious gospel. And we should love that gospel. And the, the sign that we are dedicated to the work of the gospel is in how much we are prepared to sacrifice for its furtherance. We need to have a love for the lost the rich, the poor, and the in-betweens, all of them. We need to have that love for them. It needs to be based on truth. It's no good going into, you know, it's no good going into the, you know, Broadway um, or some other, um, some shopping precinct and saying, Jesus loves you, he wants you to be his friend and, uh, and, and, and all this. That's no, that's no good. It is enthusiasm without truth. So people need to be presented with a holy, righteous God um, under whose condemnation all these sinners exist right now. Condemnation. They have no right to think this or that about what God feels about them. They are condemned already. And perhaps... Perhaps if God shows them mercy through the preaching of the gospel, perhaps they will uh, come to be free of their chains and 
have forgiveness of sins. So the love for the lost, there is truth involved, that the evangelism has to be doctrinally proper too, and also there has to be wisdom in that witness. There has to be wisdom in how we deal with people, how we present the gospel, how hard we have to be, how soft we are, how sophisticated it is, or how basic it is. All these things depends on our the nature of our audience. And we have there then love, truth and discernment as valuable ingredients in our evangelistic efforts there. So it then says in verse 10 that we should be blameless at the day of Jesus Christ. Now I've said to you before that there are that there are more than one there's more than one uh, days of the Lord or days of Christ so wh whether he comes in uh, if you like invisibly in judgment we could call out a day of the Lord we could say that when Jesus Jesus time on this earth incarnate was another visitation another day of the Lord we could say that when he brought down uh, that um, crushing weight to destroy the the temple and Judaism in that form uh, in AD 70 that was a day of the Lord and then there's uh, Jesus's uh, second coming when he returns for the final judgment that's a day of the Lord too I think here it refers to the end the very end uh, judgment time judgment day and so we're to be blameless and there's two senses in which this word blameless is used in scripture and so we need to need to be careful we need to understand that we are to be blameless we are to stop sinning you and i today we need to stop sinning if we do that sin we're to stop it right now if we do this other sin we're to knock that on the head we are to stop sinning we are to be blameless but we know that our greatest efforts and with, with, with all the help in the world even if we are employing all the grace of, the, you know, the grace of God to help us be better we know that God tells us that no man, no woman will ever truly escape um, the habits of sin completely in this life if anyone says that they don't they actually don't have sin anymore or they never had sin um, they're a liar the truth of God isn't in them and they're actually calling God a liar too so we need to understand that no matter how how blameless we are there is still a shortfall we still sin and, and, and that means that on that judgment day we cannot go and say oh look lord i thank you that i haven't sinned for years i thank you that i've only done very very small sins and i hope you'll accept me i hope you'll accept me uh, into your presence forever based on that blamelessness that's not what it's about we are expected to attain the highest heights of blamelessness in habits in our behavior but that cannot be the basis of our acceptance with God the blamelessness which makes us acceptable to God 
is that perfect that perfect righteousness that is given to us mercifully by God when he it changes us and he makes us like Jesus and let, let me be frank and I'm choosing these words carefully when Christ's righteousness is transferred to you when you are uh, changed in that way God is able then to look on you and he sees you like he sees his own son you become as blameless and as holy as his own son now I know some of you will find some difficulty uh, with that claim because you say well we are partially righteous but we are messed up by sin that's not the point at the judgment day your good works your blamelessness will be used as as evidence of something it will be used as evidence that you have been an object of God's saving grace and being an object of that immeasurable grace he has made you to be like Christ in, in terms of righteousness and so he is able to look on you and see that there's not a single sin that can be leveled any accusation that can be leveled at you about sins because they have all been forgiven if you were a believer they have all been forgiven because Jesus Christ was willing to accept the blame for them we have this obligation now to pursue these things today it's a matter of discipline it's hard work but it is not optional these things we've been talking about today are required of you that you grow in all these areas so make changes brothers and sisters and understand understand that all this after all your efforts after you all your energy has been spent in the service of God you remember that your growth is started off by Jesus Christ it is energized by him and it is preserved and it is made acceptable by him all for the glory and the praise of Almighty God Amen